the coaches network bringing the game together so frank lampard for instance said at 15 he wasn't the best yeah. player in the team he was i was nowhere near the best player in the team he said to me he said but what i did have was a fantastic mm. desire to to get better to achieve to become better than the guy that's in my position the coaches network bringing the game together Now listen to the Coaches Network, a podcast aiming to bring people at the heart of coach and player development together. My name is Coach Yas, a UEFA A licensed, FA Advanced Youth Award and FA Goalkeeper B licensed coach. With over 10 years of experience working in youth football from grassroots right through to Premier League academies, I'm currently operating as an affiliate tutor for the FA alongside working towards a Masters in Performance Football Coaching. Today I'm going to be joined by my co-host and the Coaches Network Analysis Specialist, Coach Ben. Ben is a UEFA A licensed coach who holds the FA Youth Award and a Masters in Sports Coaching, with 10 years of experience including working across the male and female youth development pathways, alongside a vast experience on individual, player and team performance analysis. And as part of our Insight series, we'll be joined by a range of individuals working across multiple disciplines within the coaching world in order to explore their journeys and dig deeper into their experiences so that we can leave you with some golden nuggets to help you reach your full potential. Welcome back to another episode of the Coaches Network. Um, my name is Coach Yas. Today I'm joined by my co-host Ben. Hi guys. Um, and our very special guest, um, legendary, legendary youth developer ex-director of academy at West Ham United. Welcome, Tony. Yeah, good afternoon. Yeah. Or good morning, I um, should say. <laughs> yeah, this morning. Um, so, yeah, Tony, I just want to get straight into the heart of everything. I um, just want to just take listeners to, you know, through your journey and just let us know how you how you started with your coaching journey. You know I mean? It's been a long and illustrious one um, with many ups, and da- many ups and downs, I'm sure. Um, and I'm sure many more ups than downs in, within that. Could you let us know a bit about how your journey started, though? Yes, um, I started coaching basically when I was a young apprentice professional player at West Ham. And uh, the club at the time ran a a coaching course uh, alongside uh, with the FA. And it was uh, was run on a Tuesday uh, each week. Um, And John Lyle ran it uh, and took all the young professionals and any of the senior professionals who wanted to sort of... uh, do what was then the FA Preliminary Coaching Award, which is like the UA for B equivalent today. And um, that's how I started. And I did that course for a number of months. And um, I, passed the, I passed the course and became uh, uh, an FA coach, if you like, an FA Preliminary Coach. Uh, that is what it was called then, uh, when I was uh, 18. So I started coaching then and, went, and started to go into the schools in the afternoons. Uh, which Ron Greenwood at that time would encourage all the professionals. Lots of the professionals did it. Went into local schools um, for the afternoon and assisted the PE department and, and took the football sessions. And, yeah. and we got £2 a session for it. <laughs> <laughs> just, just a quick one on that, uh, Tony. Um, you talked about the preliminary award. And I'm just interested to know how different, or what was the courses like then? Because um, obviously courses have taken a massive change over the last few yeah, um, basically it was to teach, learn to teach uh, young grassroots players um, te- technical skills, basically. 
Mm. Uh, so it was, it was re- really technically based and, um, and and then sort of try to put those skills into game situations. Yeah. So when it when it when it came to the examination, they they might say, could could you create a wall pass in in the attacking third? So obviously you'd worked on wall passes during the course. So you you had all the technical elements, and then you had to have the football knowledge to where does it fit into the game? Sure. So um, mm. it was that type of thing, you know, or. Could you could you deliver uh, uh, crosses into the into the penalty area for a centre forwards or strikers to attack? So obviously uh, you had to obviously uh, understand how to cross a ball and how to how a forward t- would time his runs to attack the cross. Sure. So it was, it was that type of thing. Yeah. Um, just in terms of that, then I mean, you know, the courses have changed massively now, and I think. There's a large, uh, there's a general consensus now. There's a lot, lot less emphasis on the technical side of things, and in specific, more particularly the tactical side of things in terms of the courses of today. Um, what would you, what would you say is, I guess, a good step for coaches to take now that maybe want to gain that technical, tactical knowledge and that understanding that maybe has been, I guess, slightly withdrawn from the courses these days. Yeah, I mean, I, I basically would say that, you know, any session you take, any coaching session you take or any skill practice that you are uh, asking the, the, you know, the players to do is to, is to really pay attention to detail. Uh, you know, like I mentioned there, a wall pass. You know, what are the components of a wall pass? Mm. You know, what part, of, what part of the foot should you play it with? What part of the foot should you receive it with? You know, heavy, how, how heavy or light should the touch be, etc., uh, etc. Et you, know, you know, for a wall pass to uh, really be uh, to exploit a, de- uh, a defence with a wall pass, or uh, you know, it's got to be done fast because it's the un- unexpected, and and it you, know, you shouldn't you shouldn't have to break your run to to receive the the pass back. All those sorts of real technical details. What part of the foot do you play the, part, the pass with? Is it with the inside of the foot or the outside of the front foot? Mm. Um, so all those technical details, I don't think there's enough attention paid to those things today, getting down mm. to the real detail of how a technique works or, and what part, you know, um, on what, in what part of the game would, the, you know, would these techniques and skills be best to play, be, be best to play or used? Yeah. So for me, it was it be detail. Get right down to the real nitty gritty of the detail of how this practice can work. Sure. Now you, you touched on there about your journey. You know, you started off as eighteen uh, year old free limb award, going into schools. Where where did it kind of go from there? Yeah. Well, obviously, uh, my playing career ended ab- quite abruptly. I didn't I didn't have a long illustrious playing career. I left West Ham and, and went to Barnet. Uh, I was only there a year. That didn't work out particularly well for me. It wasn't, it wasn't the right fit for me. You know, we both, we, both of us made a mistake. I wasn't the right player, and I chose the wrong club. Um, and I ended up, I was playing for a friend just to keep myself fit, and I broke my leg. And um, it was that intervention that uh, got me back into coaching because I got a phone call completely out of the blue from John Lyle, and uh, asked me would I like to go back to West Ham as a part-time youth coach. And at this and at this time, I was um, I was working full time yeah. in in uh, 
two schools in North London yeah. coaching. Yeah. So uh, that's how my journey started. So I was coaching every day in, in two schools in North London. And um, that was Holloway School and Woodbury Down School. And um, coaching in the evenings at West Ham. And um, so that was where I honed all my skills, all my organisational skills, um, you know, how to deal with groups of different and varied levels of football. And um, that, that taught me a hell of a lot, the discipline of organisation, uh, because that, that you know, can't be underestimated. You know, before you even impart any knowledge, you know, the discipline of organisation, getting your groups into the right areas, you know, get them working very quickly, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, to distinguish between uh, the, the sort of different talent pools you may have um, and, and how you marry those together. So it was, it was that sort of slow journey that, uh, that sort of taught me basically and set me in good stead for, for, for what went on uh, beyond that. Sure. So, you know, you've, gone, you know, you've got that call from John now, go back in as a youth coach and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but is that youth coaches in potentially the, uh, the apprentice squad or the under-18 squad, is it correct? Well, initially it was with the schoolboys. Okay. You know, with the boys that came in on Tuesday and Thursday nights. Yeah. Sure. So, so it was initially mm. with all the schoolboy group, you know, from right. 13, 14, right up to, up to sort of the day they left school. And when they left school, obviously they, they went on to become what was then called them days apprentices, apprentices. Yes. Uh, and they went full-time with the full-time youth coach, which at that time was Ron Boyce. Sure. Yeah. So, how, how did you... Go on, sorry. Yeah, and, you know, and I work with the schoolboys, the up-and-coming players, um, in the evenings. Right, and then how did the journey develop from there? Because, you know... Yeah, I did that for seven years, um, yeah. working in schools. Quite happy with me a little lot, really, to be honest. I, um, I was happy working for the club that I supported and still do. Um, and um, I was working in the schools, which I enjoyed a safe environment, you know, steady job and working part-time for a, my, my professional club. And um, I was quite happy with that. And I came, I come back from a summer holiday one summer, popped into the training ground. This was during the sort of school's six weeks holiday. Yeah. And John Lyle called me in the office. He said, can I have a chat here? So I said, yeah, cool. So we went and had a chat and he said, you know, would you like to come full-time now? And it just sort of hit me like a bolt out of the blue. Would I like to go? So... I didn't hesitate. I said, yeah, I would love to come full time. Now, as long as the conditions were right and I wasn't sort of, uh, you know, my pay was equivalent to basically what I was earning in the schools. Mm. And that's how I started. And on that, mm. that was a Friday. And on the Monday, I started, I, I started full time. Brilliant. And just, you know, just talking through that, so your first full time role there, coming on with you, was that coming on with the youth team, was it? That was with the youth team. That was the, between the, uh, the sort of 15 to 18-year-olds that were now coming in on a full-time basis. And, you know, I, I worked with them every day and, then, and, right. and took the youth teams on the weekends. And this is... Yeah, go. so now, what would you say would have been the major differences from that time to now in terms oh, of it's all the, the environment? Yeah. Massive changes. Yeah, massive changes. Um, um, when you think... Um, I was the only full-time member of the youth department, the only full-time member. Everybody else was part-time. We didn't even have a physio. We had Rob Jenkins, who was the first-team physio, um, who sort of fitted the youth team players that were injured in when he could. 
Um, yeah. Mm. And I was the only one. And, you know, Tuesday and Thursday evenings, because I still did the evening work with the schoolboys, because that was part of the role. Um, yeah. You know, we, we were trained on the forecourt at Upton Park on, on tarmac. And, right. if someone, and if someone had parked their car on the forecourt overnight, we'd play around it. <laughs> it was, it was it, yes, yes, simple as that. It was, it was um, as basic as that, I should say. Yeah. <clears throat> and nowadays, and nowadays, you know, youth departments, they've got a staff of 30 or 40 members of staff full time from yeah. coaches to physios, education officers. You know, you name it, they've got it. Fitness guys, yeah. they've got it. You know, th- Thirty or four. So it was, it was, uh, and pitches are, are terrific now. Where our pitches were quite bumpy and basic, the grass was long, and um, mm. and we sort of met, we just made do. But uh, we still produced players. I have to say, we still mm. produced players, and uh, we didn't know any different at that time, and just got on with it. Yeah, Tony, I just wanted to ask a, a question because obviously. Uh, we're comparing like the days and times, and you know when uh, you just started doing it, there was a lot of there was obviously a lot of limitations with not having that much sort of like support stuff around you. No, exactly. But how do you feel like that? How do you feel like that helped uh, with your development and your understanding of the game? Yeah, I think because I, I think that's a good point because I think I, and I did everything. You know, I, I drove the minibus to take the. Met the kids at Upton Park in the mornings. Took them to the training ground. Mm. We, we know we, between us all we, with the apprentices, we we organised the kit and rolled the kit up. And I mean, we had a kit man, but he was t- technically only with the first team. Um, so mm. we we had to organise all our own kit and organise our own. We had to wash the balls after training every day, and you know, and, and I would jo- I would join in as well. And so I ended up, you know, being the. the a little bit of the kit man and, and mm. drove, drove the minibus. And, you know, I was the guy that they were with every day with every aspect, you know, with the, with the jobs around the training ground, like cleaning, cleaning the dress rooms after training, picking the kit up and, 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 and uh, cleaning the senior players' boots. You know, we, we did it all. Because mm. it, it, it just feels like, obviously, today there's a lot of... Um, Obviously, specialist coaches coming out, and that's that's all. It's only for the betterment of the player and all this. But like, it feels like you know, coaches are drifting more and more away from like knowing about anything else that's happening uh, with the players, like the physical and the psychological. No, sides exactly. Etc. Yeah. So, and it's really important that like coaches should know like all of it. Um, we just wanted to ask like, uh, you know, you started, you, you've done the school. Um, going to West Ham part-time and now I've got your full-time Yeah. Team. When was it that you started to kind of um, develop your coaching philosophy? When did you start to develop that idea of like how you feel um, players should be developed? Yeah, I think it was because of my upbringing with John Lyle and Ron Greenwood that the West Ham, the West Ham way, if we can put it that way, was, was always mm. about trying to play quite attractive, open football. So it was. I tried to develop players that were technically sound, technically good. All my work during the week was all about technical work, being able to pass the ball correctly, being able to play one and two touch, being able to play at speed, being able to slow the game down, being able to perform. You know the technical abilities. You know for chipping, passing, crossing, shooting, 
receiving, getting on the half turn, all these things um, were ingrained in me as a, as a youngster with, with Ron Greenwood, basically, and, and then John, who was my youth coach. And um, so my philosophy developed in that way. And um, I always wanted to play uh, a fast forward pass in attacking style, quite a, a, quite an open game. And um, in the early days, I didn't pay a, a massive amount of attention to to um, team organisation or uh, defending organisation. That sort of developed a little bit later because it, it was just about performance. It wasn't it wasn't mm. about winning. It wasn't about um, can we beat this team or can we beat that team? It was about how well can we play? Can we play well? Can you as an individual play well? Can you, you know, everything you do, can you do correctly? Everything you do, can you do it right? You know, whether it is attacking or defending. Uh, and I would judge the, the team and the individuals on the performance rather than the result. Because some, sometimes yeah. winning uh, hides lots of sins. And sometimes losing makes you analyse the game a little bit more because the emotion of the game. Don't get, don't get me wrong. Uh, when we played the games on the weekend, we wanted to win. That goes without saying. But it, the emphasis was never on uh, winning the game at all costs. It was, how can we win this game, really play well as a team and us as individuals, you as individuals, can, can come out with a good performance. So that was how we were judged. Um, as coaches at that time, mm. were the players improving? Were, could the players be moved on to the reserve team or, or later on into the first team? So it was all about developing the individual rather than the team. Mm. And when would you say uh, this kind of shift started to happen? Because like, like where is you had to like pay a bit more attention to the team organisation. And obviously I'm, I'm guessing this is more so to do with like the older age groups. Yes. Yes. Um, within the academy. Yeah. Like, uh, when, when did you see that? Uh, Cause obviously you, you were, you are West Ham for a very yeah. long time. So like the, the, you would have seen the transition of um, trends in the game. And like, how did you adapt to that? Yeah. That, that's an interesting point because um, even though, we, I wasn't judged on results of the team. Um, yeah. Yeah. Obviously, we, we, when we when we played in, which was then the South East Counties League, prior to the the Premier Youth League, um, that was very competitive and very um, very different. You know, sometimes you play teams like Leighton Orient, Gillingham, Millwall, uh, Southend, uh, and then you played the Arsenal's, Chelsea's, Tottenham's. Uh, so they were a bit more technical. Um, Sometimes, you know, you go down to Gillingham and, you know, it's a little bit more rough and tumble and it's a bit more competitive, you know, because they're the, the, the so-called smaller club playing the so-called bigger clubs. So the game was varied in, in that respect. So uh, a winning mentality, I would say, was the, one of the first things that was the changing thing. Um, West Ham were always known as, a, as, as, and I put this in inverted commas, a nice football team. And sometimes, if the game got a little bit rough and tumble, the the reputation was they West Ham would crumble. So we had to sort of try to develop a, a winning mentality that winning winning is important and winning is a part of the development. It isn't the be all and end all, mm. but it is part of your development. And as you say, as they start to get a bit older and get into nearer sort of seventeen, eighteen, you know, when they might be in and out of the reserve team, 
or in a, in a Paul Allen, who was in the first team at 17. Now, they've got to learn that the game at the top level, first team level at any, in any division, is very, very competitive. And the winning, uh, winning is important because, you know, mm. it paid the mortgage every week if you, if you were winning games <laughs> because you, you got a win bonus. So, um, yeah. so that, we had to sort of try to adapt. And, well, I had to try to adapt uh, and introduce that winning mentality. So I had to start to introduce that, come on, winning's important today. You know, it's uh, the FA Youth Cup was a good guide for that because that was always a competition that you went in to win because that was the only mm. really competition where winning mattered because if you won, you're in the next round. If you lost, you're out of competition. So um, so that, that, that was the mm. forerunner of sort of developing that, really, the FA Youth Cup competitions. Yeah. Just, that, just on that, then, obviously you talked about... Sorry, go on. Yeah, I just hope that answers the question, really. No, yeah. it does. Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, um, just on that, you know, you've now got into youth, you're working with a youth team, you started to develop your philosophy, you've, you know, you've had influences from previous coaches that you worked with. How did you go, how did you then go from that to eventually becoming director of the academy? Yeah, well, obviously the game started to develop at youth level. I think it started originally with Howard Wilkinson when he, when he introduced the charter for football. Um, mm. and gave the responsibility uh, to clubs to develop their own players and took the uh, authority, authority is probably the right w- wrong word, that, um, that the clubs decided which games the players played in that were under your care uh, and um, you could choose to play for the school or not uh, or play for the, dis- the school districts or not. So youth programs became more important. And uh, Howard Wilkinson decided that each club should appoint a director of football, for youth football, that is, um, like the director of the academies. So, and Peter uh-huh. Story, who was our uh, MD at the time, uh, in Harry Redknapp's days, um, asked me whether I wanted to be the director of football. And I just said, well, I'll, as long as it doesn't take me off the pitch, because I still wanted to be a coach. Yeah. I didn't want to be an office-based director of football. I wanted to be a coach that was in charge. And I felt that I was the, I was the person in prime spot because I'd been there quite a while at this point. And, and I had a lot of experience. So that, that's how it developed. And I accepted the role. So I took on more responsibility as well as the coaching. And what, just to, just to highlight, I mean, don't want to give away anything, but what year was uh, Let that? me think. That would have probably been, oh dear. Uh, <laughs> mid nineties, yeah, that's about right. mid nineties, yeah, yeah. So now, obviously, you know, a lot's changed since then. So now, going into mid nineties, they've you know Howard Wilkins start talking about having director of football. Nowadays, like as you know, as you touched on, we've got up to thirty to forty yeah. potentially for any youth department. How was that? What was it like in the mid nineties in terms of multidisciplinary aspect of things? Now, you know, everywhere you go now, everywhere you look, it's all about having yeah. a holistic approach. You've got scientists, you've got the physios, you've got the medical teams, you've got the psychologists, and you know, you yeah. name it, you got it. Uh, but you've even got probably some, in some cases, you've probably got a special yeah, chef in some ways, yeah. Uh, no more fish and uh, chips anyway. How how different has that has has it been started as an academy director and obviously when you ended your time at the academy and how much of an impact and how useful do you think some of those things are? Do you think all of it's necessary or do you think some of it's been going uh, pushed in 
too, right down the other end of the spectrum a bit too much. Without sounding um, a bit old school, I think it's probably swung too far uh, with too many staff, mm-hmm. I believe. When I first took over, th- these things, obviously, over time, they evolve over time. And sometimes you, you don't, you don't sure. notice. I think one of our first appointments was an education officer. So we brought in a full-time education officer. And then we brought in our own uh, full-time physio. So we had a full-time physio, we had a full-time education officer that was responsible. Because up until that point, I was responsible not for teaching their education, but to oversee their education to make sure they were doing it. So that sort of relieved me of that duty. Now, under the sort of old YTS scheme, I mean, I've still got some of of the books here. I've got, you know, Frank Lampard's YTS book, and I've got Rio Ferdinand's YTS book, which was the youth training scheme. Hmm. So, uh, but I, I right. sort of the education officer took over that, which was which was I think a better thing because he was better qualified than me in that respect. Uh, and then our own phys, our own. Sure. Yeah, sorry. Ask, yeah. Ask, was that was that a move that you guys as a club took on uh, and it just became proactive in doing, or was it was, did it start to become a trend across different? Uh, different yeah, clubs? it started to become a trend, and I think the FA when they started to develop the youth programs, they was encouraging this and saying that, you know, for good practice, if you want to be a top academy, you should be looking at these things. And I think West Ham at that time, well, basically still, you know, they still put a great store by the youth academy. So we, we felt that we had to, you know, where we could financially, you know, embrace all these new, new ideas and and methods. And, And gradually, these things did develop. And then we started to employ strength and conditioning mm-hmm. coaches because, you know, up until that point, I was doing all that. Now, I, w- I was taking them in the, in the gym and putting them through weights programs and, 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 uh, and body development programs. Uh, only, and only knew that through reading books and watching, watching people or going on courses. So I was doing a little bit of education, a lot of coaching, a little bit of weights, um, Park kit man, park bus driver, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, yeah, um, I, I, I was sort of well trained in that respect. So, and then when these guys come in, you know, I, I could sort of say, I want it done this way, I want it done that way, and I could say, well, d- don't start complaining about it because I've done it, I've done it all. So yeah. it's not yeah. so, not something I hadn't done myself. So I was I was in a good position to sort of demand good standards and. And to demand uh, everybody sort of throw themselves into the job and do it to the best of their abilities and and go above and beyond at times when you need to. So you know, they, sure, and just, yeah, that's how it developed. And just on that, then, so what would you know? These days, you know, there's it's become increasingly more challenging and difficult to get into that sort of environment. I guess and get build a career in that sort of environment. Because let's face it, it it's, it's been glamorized yeah. a little bit. Um, maybe a little bit too much where everyone wants to do it but the competition for places is just it's just crazy now what would your advice be to coaches who are maybe looking to get into that environment now and in terms of building their skill set because you know I think this all I think it's fair to say it's not just about qualification no no that's right uh, I mean first and first and foremost I would say if I'm sorry I'm not cutting on your question um, that build and get to your UA for B level Level one and two is not going to be enough. Get to your A for B and start to do your advanced youth awards. Um, and, uh, and, um, and from that point, 
try to get on the grass or on the pitch with as many and get as many hours under your belt as you can at various levels and do as much coaching as you can. And if you like, study the game, really study the game. You know, you can go on the internet these days and, and watch people. And um, I mean, I'm also chairman of the London Coaches Association at the moment as a little plug. And, you know, once a, once a month uh, or once every, we'll do it bi-monthly at the moment because of uh, the problems with COVID. But um, um, we, we have guest coaches. Go and watch Coaches Coach. And it's free. You can come into the, to the sessions and watch Coaches Coach and get a real feel for how they're talking, et cetera, et cetera. Is that me or is that you? Yeah, and yeah. Um, I think it's getting hours under your belt, getting experience hmm. at, at various levels. But I don't know if that's me on the uh, on the alarm. I don't know what it is. But uh, yeah, but, uh, getting hours under your belt, I uh, think, is important because there's a big turnover of coaches at clubs. So there's always an opportunity. And don't be disheartened. Certainly don't be disheartened. Because to be a coach... Is tough. It's hard work. You have to put a lot of effort in. You have to do a lot of thinking. You have to be innovative. Um, try to be a little bit different, you know, a different angle, a different voice. Um, and you've got to love what you do. And if you love what you do, you, you, you'll enjoy it. Definitely. I think, um, you know, just what, what really kind of I've taken away from that is you've got to be passionate about Yeah, 100%. What whether that's working with the younger players or the older players. And, you know, we touched on it earlier in terms of how much the qualifications have changed over the years. And there's a lot less emphasis on the technical, uh, I guess, aspects of the court, the coach yeah. courses themselves. A lot, lot more emphasis on the other three corners, you know, in terms of the social, the psych and the physical stuff. Yeah. What are your thoughts in terms of that? I mean, because I... I you know, I've got my own views and say that, you know, you might actually not see as many technical coaches as we yeah. maybe used to. Um, but we might start to see more maybe specialist coaches in different areas. And, I, you know, really starting to see a trend of different types yeah. of specialist coaches, whether they be individual specialists, whether they be in possession or out of possession yeah. specialists. What are your thoughts on that? I think they'll have a part to play. They, they obviously do have a part to play. I think the psychology aspect is massive nowadays. Um, if you could get inside the brains of young players and, even senior players, I think it'll make your life a lot easier. So to understand the psychology mm. of what's going on in someone's head and how they approach things and how everybody's different. And in some ways, I go back to you know, where I was with the youngsters all the time, doing everything with them, you know, in terms of uh, meeting them in the mornings, getting the kit rolled up. You sort of to get to know the kids and get to know their personalities. And you get to know that you get to know those ones that mm. want to cut corners and those that want to do it properly, and and that sort of then re, then that sort of goes onto the pitch a little bit within training. You start to oh he, you know he, he wants to do it a little bit. He wants to take the shortcuts or this kid get his head down. He wants to do it properly. So you you get to understand the, the individual a bit more. Where I think a little bit of that's lost, and um, this is where the you know the, the psychologists come in and the specialists come in. I think I think there's a part to play, obviously. But um, I think the coach who's in charge of the squad um, should also, you know, make sure that he he's not too detached from his from his from his group of players. Even though they break up into mm. groups, you know, he or in the afternoons they may go with the 
the attacking co- the attacking coach or the the finishing coach, you know, he should be there with them and uh, or the defending coach, he should be with them, watching them, looking at them, etc., being part of what they're mm. doing. Um, but um, certainly, there is a part. I think it's a bit overkill. I have to say, with some of it, because um, you know, most of the week, uh, you know, what are these guys doing all week? They, no, they're not. They're not, they're not doing their one-on-one or their individual stuff all the time. Um, so I think there's a little bit of over. I mean, some clubs have, that, that, you know, you go on a touchline of a youth game now, and there's 12 people on the touchline who are standing there with tracksuits. Yeah, starting oh, the level yeah, And um, <laughs> you, you think, so, well, who's in charge here? You know, who does what here? And they all and they all want a piece of the pie, don't they? They all want to have their say. So I think that can be quite confusing to the young players. Um, but you know, mm. I'm not saying it's wrong, but I just I'd like I like it I'd like it a little bit more defined and perhaps a little bit more streamlined and a little bit more um, where everybody knows their responsibilities and where their barriers are, and um, mm. and I think that get, that gives the clarity to the players a little bit more. Definitely, and just just on that, you know, you talks about having a, I guess, a large group of staff there. What was, you know, what can you, what would you say some of the challenges are when you've got that number of staff? You know, as someone that's yeah. leading that group, and how have you gone about maybe sure that everyone yeah. is in sync and everyone is, in, you know, they're in great mindsets and that no one is trying no. to be big fish. In that's that a very good point because that's the that's the bit in the end I found hard because our staffing levels had grown so much. Um, just through natural, the way it did with the new EPP program, the Elite Player Performance Plan, and um, with with the um, the audits, and I just found that the audit and the EPP was taking me off the pitch a little bit, a little bit more, and and yeah. I wouldn't say I was losing touch. That's I'm being unfair on myself there, but um, where the every like the medical the medical team become a department. The education team become a department. The the the, phys- the physical team, you know, the weights and um, strengthening conditioning guys, they become a department because it wasn't just one of them. The IT department for the for the video video editing of games became a department, and all these departments started to work in little silos. So they were all uh, offshoots of what we were, if you like, and and to, to as you say, mm. to marry all those together. So, so we were all singing off the same song sheet, and I'm sure we were most of the time. That that became the challenge, and that became the tough bit. Instead of dealing with say a dozen staff, uh, you're now dealing with thirty, forty staff, and and to 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 have a mm-hmm. handle on that and still want to be out on the pitch every morning, every afternoon, every day with with the youth team became tough, you know. And then we had to go through an audit. Um, which was uh, really challenging because, you know, we were challenged. Uh, Sullivan, Gold and Brady were in charge of the club at that time for the very first audit that, that, that I, mm. I sort of went through. Um, you know, they wanted, they wanted to achieve the statutory one uh, status, uh, the category one status of, of the academy because that meant more funding. That meant more yeah. funding from the FA and that meant the club would become more attractive to young players you know, that they were choosing between Tottenham, Arsenal, West Ham or Chelsea. Um, and uh, if, you were, if you weren't category one, that 
probably put you at a disadvantage. So the pressure was on there to get that status. So there was um, lots of things going on around. And, and also at the same time, um, at the same time to um, make sure all the departments were all in sync. And that was the tough bit. So that, that, that's hard. Definitely. And I think, you know, some of the key things that you've said there, you know, there's some different influence, you know, for those coaches or you know, people maybe listening to this and aspiring to go into a role similar to the one that you uh, occupied at one point, what would you say are some of the challenges in terms of... Yes, um, I mean, that, that's always, it's always tough. That's always about the relationship between you and the directors or the first and foremost, your first line manager is probably the, your manager. You know, whether it be Billy Bonds, Harry Redknapp, Alan Pardew, whoever it was, um, that, that's your first line of managing up. So you, you've got to try and develop a good relationship with, with these people because if you don't, you know, you, uh, 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 things can become difficult. And then beyond that, dealing with the CEO or, or the chairman. Um, so that, that's always tough. And, um, you know, you've got to, you've always got to make sure that... Um, that your role within the club is 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 defined, and and if your role is defined, mm-hmm. uh, you can always refer back to that. You know whether you're achieving those goals and targets, or or whether you're not, or whether you're falling short. And, and I suppose the bottom line that mm. all our targets for all youth developers is to get players in the first team, uh, or certainly get them professional contracts in the in initially, and then from a professional contract get them into the first team squad and get them a squad number and get them and get them a debut, etc. Um, so they're the sort of challenges along the way. But to develop, to develop those relationships is, um, is, is very, very important. And sometimes, you know, managers can be more difficult. Some can be very easy because some, to be honest, they're not, you know, not that interested in what's going on at youth level because they see their role as very short term. You know, managers these days, I think the life of a manager, the Premier League manager, is about three years maximum. You know, you've got the, you, you've, you've got the yeah. exceptions, of course, the Fergusons and people, but uh, the Wengers and people. But uh, certainly, so if I say, oh, I've got a good 13-year-old here or I've got a good 14-year-old here, gaffer, he'd go, well, I won't be here when he's in the first team. <laughs> you know? So that they weren't <laughs> dismissive about it, but they were saying, look, you just get on with it. You know what you're doing. Uh, and... Um, if you've got a good 17, 18-year-old that's ready, let me know. Because then he, you know, he can put him in the team. Sure. Mm. Just just on that, you know, who, who would you say is the most, uh, the most, I guess, interactive and cooperative manager in that respect in terms of supporting something, in terms of managing yeah, well, you think um, personally? Obviously, initially, initially, you've set up. when I first went to the club, it was Greenwood and Lyle. Because they would, if West Ham had a home game on a Saturday... They would always come to the youth game on a Saturday morning and watch it every Saturday. Um, probably leave yeah. just after half time to get back to Upton Park. Harry Redknapp was very active, you know, in terms of um, watching the youth team play, um, and was very interested in the youth program. And very vociferous at times at uh, about improving it and making it better. And um, yeah. and but as the managers over the years, they started to take less interest because. You know, the Premier League was established. More money was coming into the game. So there was more pressure on them guys mm. um, to get the first team right. 
So that there was less. I wouldn't say they weren't interested. Mm. Of course, they were interested, but they took a less active role in 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 being vis- visual and visible for the young players to see. And of course, with split sites at the training grounds, that didn't help. Um, you know, when West Ham West Ham went sure. from Chadwell Heath to to Little Heath, and then now they've got Chadwell Heath and Rush Green. Split sites is different. Yeah. Yeah. Just so, you, know, you talk, talked about you know the, the involvement and obviously some of the things that you, you feel were important in terms of building those teams. Now, in terms of player development itself, what do you feel are the vital things that need to be placed taken into consideration when looking for players? Um, you know, for you, a large part of that was obviously being judged on how many players end up going yeah. through to the professional game. Uh, what would you say are the key fundamentals um, and the key ingredients, rather, that are required for a player to make or break it through um, that, that stage. Funnily enough, I've been having some conversations recently with some ex-players, ex-youth team players of mine, and um, and those that did, you know, went on and did very well in the game. And and the and the big thing mm. that they feel, because I'm I'm in the middle of or towards the end of writing the book about my time at West Ham, and yeah, so um, you know I'm sort of okay. almost finished. I'm just at the point of trying to get a publisher interested, but. Um, their their thoughts were it was about desire. That they had a great desire to be better, to be the best, to work hard, and to. Mm. So it wasn't always about just their talent. It was about their mental strength and their desire to be to become better. And um, that that was that was interesting. And and nearly all of them said it. Nearly all of them said it in a different way. But they nearly all of them said that it wasn't about the talent. Now, Frank Lampard, for instance, said at 15, he wasn't the best yeah. player in the team. He was, I was nowhere near the best player in the team, he said to me. He said, but what I did have was a fantastic mm. desire to, to get better, to achieve, to become better than the guy that's in my position and to work at my game. And, yes. and, and, it, and it's those things that, uh, that, uh, that, that are the most important thing. So where, where where does that where does that come from? Is that something that is innate? Do you think, or do you think that's something that I think I think you can instill it if you, if it's young enough. And I think it now, like we're in Frank's situation, and while we're talking of that, um, his dad was a massive influence in that respect. You know, he, he would always be telling him about the things he he wasn't good at, and he's got to get better at it because his biggest problem when he was a youngster was um, speed and agility, and um, those are the things he worked on. Mm. Day in, day out, and I mean day in, day out. And um, he, he was um, so dedicated, and, and, and Rio to a certain degree, and and all these players, they they, they had a real desire to 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 want to be to want to get better. Mm. Mm. Touching a bit a bit there about you know about parents and Frank Lampard's father being a key influence. Just how important and what role do we need parents and families to play when? We're trying to support. I think I think they have to be very, very supportive, and not just be, if you like, uh, living their dream. Uh, because there's too many, I think, yeah. live trying to live the, their parents' dream or their father's dream. I mean, I won't name the name, but I had one young player. He didn't make the grade. Actually, he made it at a certain level, but he didn't make the grade at the very, very top level. His father said to me when the boy was 13, which horrified me. He said, "My son's got to make it," he said, "because he's my pension." 
So I, I, I sent shivers down my spine. I thought myself, Christ Almighty, the pressure this kid's under. He's only 13, 14. It's crazy. But they've got to be supportive, you know, and, and look at, you know, what their um, child is, is not good at. Can they improve that? Where can I improve that? Ask questions. Ask his coach. I mean, they all have individual programs nowadays. I mean, I used to have individual programs mm. with, with all my young players. I used to write lists of players and, and all the things they need to improve on. Whereas it's a bit more formal now. It's a bit, you have to log it on the computer. I mean, I, mine was in notebooks, you know, and I've, I've got a, a garage load yeah. of black bags with all my notes in it. It's all scribbled up in black bags. You know, I, didn't, I wasn't as neat and tidy as having it in, on a computer. <laughs> um, but, you know, the fault was still there to improve that individual. And um, I think those, those are the things. They've got to be supportive because players, the journey for a top player isn't always upwards. And they don't always climb the ladder one step at yeah. a time. Sometimes they fall off the ladder and they've got to get on it again. So that's where they need the support and the belief mm. that they, you know, they can be better. They may not all play for England and they may not all play for Manchester United or Real Madrid. Um, but you know, can, I, can I help my son get a career in the game? And that was my, always my thought. Can I get him a career in the game? If I can get him in West Ham's first team, that's yeah. the icing on mm. the cake. And then, it, then it's up to him to go, but can I get him yeah. a career in the yeah. game? And I take a lot of satisfaction out of, out of watching players now. And there's many, many of them that are um, playing around the leagues yeah. that, you know, I helped along the way. Hmm. Yeah. Um, just, oh, just on, um, yeah, so that's fine. talked about, you know, their journey through the yeah. game isn't always straightforward. There's going to be ups and downs and certain setbacks. What do you think is a key ingredient in terms of helping players overcome and you know, people with that adversity and setbacks? How, how, how do you have you got any examples of a time where players maybe gone through some of those things and you've maybe done something and maybe can take away some practical steps in terms that we can apply? As well? I, I think yeah, what, what, when it was to do with performance in terms of you know maybe a striker constantly missing the target and and then because he's constantly missing chances, he's then not scoring. That affects his form. That starts to affect him mentally. Uh, that starts to get him down. And then you're on a... You, you, and if you don't recognise that, the player starts to go on a downward spiral. You know, and then it could affect him in all sorts of ways. It could affect, it could affect him on the training pitch. Yeah. It could affect his relationship with his parents. You know, get a bit snappy and a bit because he's down and 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 frustrated. So I think a, a coach has got to have an eye out for that, and then take that player individually and say, right, where do you see the problem? And talk to him, and then perhaps go out on the pitch in the afternoon for an hour on his own with him and say, right, let's go through some of those things. Let's have a look technically where where you're not right. I remember doing it with Gary Alexander. I don't know if you remember a player named Gary Alexander. You know, who ended up yeah, yeah. he ended up having yeah. a great career. Played everywhere. <laughs> uh, scored loads of goals at yeah. really good levels and you know I, I used to take him out in the afternoons just to improve his timing of his runs to, to I used to get people putting crosses across the box and say right hold, and I'd hold him and say now go now and attack him now go or I'd get him to check away first and yeah. then run to attack the cross so you by checking away and moving the defender and then breaking off the defender try and get across him and in front of him so just basic little things like that <clears throat> And that certainly helped his game. And although he didn't uh, end up having a career at West Ham, he ended up having a great career. And, you know, I said, well, I helped him a little bit along the way. 
So little things like that. It might be a defender who's missed time in his heading. It might be a defender that's a bit weak in the tackle. So try to identify where the areas that he's, he's struggling with. Talk him through it. Maybe even talk to his parents uh, as well to sort of... Because you have, you have horror stories that, of parents that are... You know, the player gets in the car after a game and all the parents do, parents do is tear him off a strip. Yeah, you should have done this, should have done that. He didn't do this, didn't do mm. that. You know, that's you know so counterproductive, um, and it just makes things worse. You know, and I had experiences where players would come to me and say, "Look, my parents are driving me mad." You know, they're um, I get I get in the car after a game and I just dread it. Mm. I don't want to go home with my parents because I know what's coming. You know, even if the team won and I've done okay, they'd always be moaning, oh, I should have done this, you should have done that, you should have took that free kick, you should have done this, etc., etc. So, um, yeah, it's, um, so you've got to have an eye for those things and, a, and an ear for those things. And I think the club psychologist these days can help that. But I think the coach has a great, um, a great part to play in that because he, you become, as the coach, the great influencer because they, they look up to you. Hmm. As, as long as you've gained their respect, they look up to you, you know, and take that advice on board because they feel well, mm-hmm. you're the guy that knows what what, you, what you're doing, or you're the guy that's going to make the decision on my future. So they, they, they're going to they, they, they're going to listen to you, and expect, and you've got to be done, doing that. Even the players that 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 are not going to make the top grade, you've still got to try and help them along the way to try and get to the best level they can. So when they do leave the club, they leave the club with hmm. well. I've done the best I can as an individual and I think the coaching staff and the coach has helped me uh, the best he can. You know, fate has decided that I'm not quite good enough for this level, but I go away with a positive mindset and I'm going to, I'm going to find a level in the career that's going to, you know, that's going to suit me and make me happy and and maybe give me a career or set me on the path anyway. Hmm. Hmm. You've, um, you've already uh, touched on it and you've mentioned it You've been mentioning all these different qualities uh, through the podcast. I just want to ask, um, in terms uh, other than qualifications, what sort of qualities do you feel uh, or did you look for in coaches when you were employing? I think one of the uh, most important things was their personality. Um, When when I interviewed them, it it wasn't about their qualifications. So obviously they had to have a basic level of qualification. Um. Um, but it was about their personality. And, and, and I'll look at this coach, and he might be applying for the under-14 job, for instance. And I'd, I mean, I'd know what coaching under-14s was like. I've done it myself over the years. I'd, I'd know our squad of players. And I'd be saying, could this player, with this coach, with this personality, fit this group? And then after, what I would ask them to do is give me a 30-minute coaching session um, they can choose their own topic, their favourite topic or whatever. And I'll just watch them interact with the players and, and I'd make a judgment in that respect. Sometimes you, you get it right, sometimes you get it wrong, but mm. uh, it was more about their personality and, and the way they spoke to and uh, interacted with young players because that's important, very, very important. Because there, co- there are some coaches Definitely. that have got maybe an A licence um, and they think they're more important than the players because they're an A-licensed coach. And that, that, that it, it, the coaching session would, would all be about them. This is, this is the knowledge I've got. Look at the, what knowledge I've got. 
and I used to think, no, this coaching mm. session is all about you. It's not about the players. It's about you. And, um, you know, I've many a running I'd had with coaches about those, those sorts of things over the years, yeah. <laughs> and, and, like, practically, like, on, uh, on a day-to-day um, in terms of sessions, is there, like, some sort of um, general philosophy that you, you, you look to keep or did, uh, how much licences did the coaches have? Yeah, the, what I used to um, do, it's, it's slightly different now. They have changed, you know, the guys that have been in charge I mean, since Terry Wesley took over and now he's left and Ricky Martin's uh, took over. Um, I, I used yeah. to have a, a, a programme for the season. So it was a seasonal program. You've got, you've got to cover all these aspects, technical, tactical, physical. You've got to cover all these aspects. Now, I didn't specify which order they did them in, um, whereas nowadays they do, that's a little bit more prescriptive. For this month, you've got to do this, and everybody has to do it. For this month, you're doing that, and everybody has to do it. I'm not a, personally, I'm not a believer in that. Um, not saying I'm right and they're wrong, but it's not, it's not what I believe in. I believe in the coach looking at his team because every group of players is going to be different and, and they're all going to need different things at different times. Mm-hmm. So I would look at the, 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 the programme and say, well, my under-14s, as a, for instance, we're very, very good at defending. We don't concede many goals, but we, we also don't score many goals. So I would say, well, maybe your priorities for the next month or two we should be on, a, on some attacking play, individually, collectively, building from the back, building from midfield, you know, developing movement around the box and finishing skills, which would improve that, you know, and then maybe the defending side of it towards the end of the season, where it's at this point in the game, at this point in the season, uh, less of a priority. Um, Not that you ignore it, but I I would leave the coach Mm. then to make those decisions. We we would discuss it because I would always be there in the evenings. We would always discuss it, or during the daytime if they come in on day release, you know. And I would watch the sessions and, and make comment and etc. Yeah. etc. Cetera, et cetera. And obviously, I was there every Sunday watching the the schoolboy games at uh, Little Heath or Chadwell Heath, wherever it was at the time. So I, w- I would know the players, and I'd start to get to them, know them intimately and right. as as individuals. So that would help me understand where the coach was coming from and the players he was talking about and the decisions he was making. So it was yeah, keeping an eye on it, but not being too prescriptive. But they had to have a pro. They had a program they had to follow. Yeah, and uh, from what I'm gathering from uh, what you're saying, there's a lot of obviously the importance is always with the players and uh, with the individuals that you've got a hand. Uh, um, how would you recommend for coaches that are looking to touch uh, like? individual development in a group yeah, session. Yeah, I think what if you're doing it within the group you session, you've got to probably marry two or three things together. Um, for instance, if it was a wide player or even the mm. fullbacks nowadays, because fullbacks tend to be secondary wingers these days, don't they? They play very advanced. Um, so it might be yeah. crossing balls into the box. You know, what areas should you hit? You know, what are the vital areas? You know, should it be a cutback? Should it be a deep cross? Should it be a near post cross? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I would look at that and say, right, okay, what players need uh, finishing skills? So I would marry those two things together. Um, or it might be a midfield player needs uh, some work on changing the play and hitting sort of longer diagonal passes. So I would then get a midfield player that's hitting longer diagonal passes from right to left out wide. The wide player's creating some movement down the left with a 
overlapping fullback who then crosses the ball into the box for the forwards or forwards to, to be doing some finishing skills. So you can start to marry two or three different aspects of, of what you're looking at with maybe a dozen or, or, or less players um, to marry all the things that they need to do in the same session. Uh, uh, and try try to identify the players mm. that need those skills. And just a, a quick, we've got um, obviously there's going to be a host of different uh, list listening to this podcast, and um, hopefully you know, you've shared a lot already, and it's been very useful for those maybe coaches potentially working in the grassroots setting. What would you say some of the practical steps they could take to maybe adopt some of this holistic? Uh, approaches to player development in their environment where they maybe don't have those resources available to them in terms of multidisciplinary teams and stuff like that. What, what would you advise to them? Yeah, well, obviously, the younger they are, the less physical work they need. The older they are, the more physical it tends to be in terms of competitiveness. So mm-hmm. a 16-year-old to 18-year-old needs to be in a competitive environment. So the practices should be a little bit more competitive, perhaps a little bit more confined where there's contact. Um, and obviously, to play at the top level, you've got to be, a, be able to play in confined, tight areas. So you then marry that little bit to it. The younger the player are, it's more about technical ability. So they need, a, they need a little bit more space. They need a little bit less competitiveness, although there is always a competitive edge with youngsters because you now without even telling them that they want to win or they want to score a goal, got, Score, score more goals. Um, I mean, Don Howe, the famous coach that was at QPR, Arsenal, an England coach, when, when we were talking about winning doesn't matter, he said to me, well, if winning doesn't matter, Tony, he said, why is my team trying to score more goals than your team? So I thought that was quite an apt comment, you know. Well, yeah, you're right, really, because every <laughs> game you go into, whether it's, you know, a development game, whether it's a league game, whether it's an FA Youth Cup game, you're trying to score more goals in the opposition. So there's always going to be a competitive element to whatever you do. So, but the younger they are, the less competitive it should be. It should always be technically based. And my philosophy for, for the nines to 12-year-olds was teach them to pass and move. So teach them to pass and move. So passing and moving means I've got to learn one individual technique. Two, I've got to learn to pass and move into the right areas. And three, I've got to learn to combine, combine my skills with other players. So if I, if I pass a ball into you and move to the right or to the left or even drop, drop, drop backwards like a defender might just to create a bit more space um, um, just to make myself available for the next pass, I've got to assume, assume, or assume that the guy that's receiving the ball has got enough ability to either give it back to me or pass it to somebody else. So you're starting to develop that pass, move, and combine technical skills, whether it be along the ground, whether it be in the air, whether it be one touch, whether it be two touch. So I would, I would always concentrate on those things at the young age. Because one, they're not going to be able to run big distances. So you've got to, you've got to make it on smaller uh, pitches. Uh, and um, now they can't hit not many youngsters under 12 can hit 30, 40 yard passes. One or two can, the, the more physically developed. Um, but the physically developed player, um, you know, m- may need more technical ability. There might be a small 
wiry little player that's technically very good that, you know, can't cover the ground and can't kick the ball very far. But that will come later on. So you've got to understand those, those, uh, those things about their development. Definitely. Hmm. And just, just kind of take it forward, but, you know, you, you're a bit of a legend in the game. You know, you, you've been in within, within the West Ham, uh, I guess, setting for over 40 years. Yeah. And I'm sure there's been a lot of challenges, a lot of changes over the years. What would you say is one of the biggest challenges you've had throughout the career? I think developing and uh, adjusting to the different managers that, we've, that we had, because West Ham was always very stable, very, very stable. Um, up until one point, West Ham had had uh, 15 managers in their whole existence, going back to Sid King and Charlie Painter that were managers before I was born. And up at one point, West Ham had had 15 managers and I'd worked for 12 of them. <laughs> so that was, that was an unbelievable stat. I thought, <laughs> someone told me that. I thought, Christ almighty, that's an unbelievable stat. And obviously, they've had like two of each. And I worked for Slavin. But since Slavin, they've had a couple of managers since then, which I didn't work for. But, you know, I, I'd worked for them a majority. And the biggest challenge for me was adapting to the new managers that were coming in. That were all, they're all different in their own way. Um, you know, from Lou Macari when he come in, how, how different he was, and that, then Billy Bonds took over, then Harry took over from Billy, and you know how how sort of uh, aggressive Billy wa- uh, Harry was in terms of what he demanded. But that was Harry; I'd known him for many years anyway. Uh, and then you know the Glenn Broders came in, and mm. Alan Pardews and Avram Grants, and etc. 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 Could go on. You know them all, uh, and to adapt into them and what their needs were. You know, what, what do you want from me? Um, the board was always quite stable. So I'd always, you know, with Terry Brown and, uh, and uh, the Kearns before them. So he was always very supportive, Terry Brown. Um, when the Icelandics came in, they, they were very, very supportive and very uh, enthusiastic. And, unf- and unfortunately, the bank collapse uh, ended that dream. And, um, and then Gold Sullivan and... Oh, Golden Sullivan came in. Brady was the CEO, but uh, Golden Sullivan came in, and, and obviously they inherited a massive debt, and they and they became more businesslike rather than um, more attuned to what the club was about. They became more businesslike, trying to you know get rid of the debt that was um, that was hanging over the club. So you know to, to adjust to all those differences and all those uh, nuances was, was very challenging. Yeah, it's just. Hmm. How would you... oh go on yes okay yeah just just within that then no, yes, what, go on. what was it that you felt you needed to do for yourself and was there any particular things that you needed to do in terms of mechanisms that you used to keep yourself inspired and motivated during these challenging times? Um, I think my motivation um, was always you know after a period of time that you know I did apply for the manager's job at one time. Um, when I realised that my forte was with youth development, um, I enjoyed it. I really did enjoy it. I enjoyed getting out on the pitch every day. I enjoyed coming into work every day. The biggest challenge was uh, because we had a, a real golden period for, for many years. You know, right going back to the 80s with Paul Allen, Bobby Barnes, Paul Ince, Stuart Slater, Kevin Keane, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then, the, the, then it sort of dried up a little bit. Um, where it was getting tougher. Uh, clubs were spending more money at youth level. 
West Ham weren't at that time. Uh, and then we had that real golden era of um, Lampard and Ferdinand and Carrick Cole and Glenn Johnson and so on. And then Jermaine came into the club, Jermaine Defoe. And so we had a real golden period there. Then, then to a certain degree, uh, it, it, it dried up a little bit. And then it was Mark Noble, James Tompkins, uh, Junior Stanislas, um, Jack Collison. And, and then as um, the pressure was, where was the next player for the first team? And the conveyor belt was slowing down. I wouldn't say it was stopped. I wouldn't say we got to the point where the conveyor belt stopped, but it was certainly slowing down. So the challenge was that our recruitment, if I could have my, my last five years over again, I'd be looking at the recruitment a little bit more closely and, and we needed to revamp that again. We needed to go again, if you like, with our recruitment to, to look at, um, to look at uh, you know, why we were falling slightly behind the bigger clubs now, why we were falling behind Chelsea. Tottenham were having a renaissance because they, they'd, they'd had a real, they'd had a real, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, a renaissance in terms of their, uh, their youth programme. Arsenal were always fairly consistent. So it was always uh, import, important uh, that I should have looked at the recruitment a little bit more closely. Sure. And just, you know, you touched on there briefly that you applied for the management job at one point. Yeah. But you also said that, you know, you felt you recognised that your forte was working with youth players. What, what, what was it that, that happened? That made you realise that, and I just—I I, I think I think it was the pressure of um, the pressure of um, from the board above me that they were that, that they were getting impatient about not enough players coming through the te- to the first team. So um, we tried to revamp the recruitment, and we we employed a new head of recruitment after Jimmy Hampson had retired and left the, f- the football club. Um, but um, it was certainly something that was ongoing at that time. When I left, that was ongoing at the time that we were looking at that recruitment program. So I, I should have looked at it. If I if I criticise myself in any way, I should have looked at it perhaps a little bit earlier. Mm. But but having said yeah. that, um, you know I can look I can look back at my time and my record and think, well, you know I didn't do that bad. Definitely. No, no, that's question. Yeah, I'll take your record. What would you say has been your biggest <laughs> achievement then? Staying in work at West Ham United for 43 years, I suppose, is my, my, my biggest achievement. Uh, mm. Because <laughs> for all the managers that came in and for all the boards that did, did change, um, apart from the last, you know, you know, when they retired me, so to speak, when I... Um, yeah. Uh, you know, they, they, they obviously must have all thought I was doing a good job. So they, they, they kept with me uh, and kept sure. giving me new contracts. So uh, I must have been doing something right. Sure. And I, yeah, just on that, you know, what, something I was going to come on to, and obviously, you know, at, at that point, you, you put it just there, you know, they're retired, yeah. essentially. You, you know, you've, you've gone as far in the past as labelling the club's treatment with you in the end, as quite disrespectful. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really want to go over that too much because I'm over that now. I mean, it was... I was I was just yeah. very disappointed 
that the way it ended, and you know, I, I think I think they could have done it a, a little bit a, a better way. And um, it was always, um, you know, and then people made it out to be bet bigger and bet bigger than it was. And it was, and it, and people, and then there was a newspaper report that said it was about money. It was, it was never about money. Never in a million years about any money. It wasn't to do with that at all. Um, and, but you know, they they spoke about the redundancy payment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it was n- never really about that. But I just thought it could have been done a little bit differently. But maybe that's me. But uh, I'm over. I'm over that now. I've moved on, and you know, the clubs. You know, it's still my, West Ham's still my football club, and. Um, I'll still look for their results, go to the odd game here and there, but that, that's life. You move on. Mm. Just, just, you know, just moving on. You touched on, you know, some of the players that you know, like like of Ferdinand, the Lampires, the Defoe's, the Coles, and even the Carricks that you work with. What, what was that like? You know, what was it like to work with those players and you know, going on to see what was classed as some as your goal? Yeah, I mean, you know, like if you put on if you put on a practice. Uh, with tonight, Rio Ferdinand, and you showed him something, you'd go, I want you to do it like this. I want you to do this. I want you to do it like that. And Rio would get the ball, pull it out of his feet and go, well, like this. And you think, oh, yeah, like that. He could just do it. <laughs> he could just do it. You know, he was, he was that tough. And that really, you think to yourself, well, you know, this kid's got, you know, some future. You hope, as long as the other things are right, as, in terms of his yeah. attitude, his mental strength, you know, his mm. desire to want to become a big player and not be satisfied with what he's got at. You know, can he get better? So as long as they've got those traits, you know, I remember Stuart Slater as a young kid. As a young kid, he could dribble and beat people. I'm sure you all know Stuart Slater. You know, and, and I always kept saying, as long as you can do this as you move up the levels, you've got a real good chance. So in other words, what you, can, what you do at 14, can you recreate at 16? Can you still dribble and beat people at 16? When you're 18, can you still dribble and beat people at 18 as you develop? As the game gets tougher, quicker, more physical, and um, and uh, and so it was. It was a pleasure to see these players develop and come through. But you never really know until they they're given their chance. Glenn Glenn Rhoda once yeah. said to me when he was struggling towards the end of his time there, before he had that, you know, he collapsed and had that uh, brain tumor that fortunately was fortunately was benign. Um, he. Um, hmm. He, he was struggling for a right back. And he said to me, do you think Glenn Johnson would be good enough to play in the team? So I said, Glenn, Glenn Roder, I said, you'll never know till you put him in. And he went, oh, uh, yeah, okay. And he put him in and obviously the rest, the rest was history. But you never know until you put him in whether they can cope with it. Um, and so, you know, the biggest problem today is, is do they get that same opportunity? Uh, and, and, it, and, and there are players that are good enough but don't get the opportunity. You've only got to look at what Frank's done at Chelsea mm. to see the players he's bloody, the Mason Mounts and the Tammy Abrams, etc. You know, they were all they were all bubbling under, and maybe if uh, another manager had been there, they may not have got that opportunity. They may have been farmed out on loan and then, you know, signed, signed by that loan club and you know lost to the Premier League to a certain degree or lost. You know, their development might have got stunted at that level. You just never know. Um, but um, certainly it's, um, mm. it, it was a pleasure to work with players that can, that can do the things you, you want them to do and to do it well. I mean, everyone could do it, but could they do it well? Could they do it consistently? 
and could they create it in games? So who would you say was the player that you were most proud of and why? That's a real tough one. Um, that's a real tough one to call because, as I've said earlier, every player is different. Every player, uh, some players you expect to, to do well and they don't. Uh, some players you, you underestimate and do very well. And um, so I wouldn't like to point out one individual and say I, I enjoyed or he was the one that gave me greatest pleasure. You know, Junior, Junior Stanislas, sure. for instance, was, was, was difficult as a young player because he was lazy. You know, and I, I, I say that because I've told him as well. <laughs> and, uh, and he knows, he knows that, you know, the, the run-ins we used to have. But he got in the first team. Uh, but I always felt he could have been so much better, you know, because he didn't work hard enough yeah. at it and he didn't, he weren't dedicated enough at doing it. And it took him, and I can't remember how many games he had at the first team, but he played a few good games for West Ham's first team. And uh, he, he then he then left and went on a, a little journey, ended up at Burnley. Eddie Howe and Jason Tindall become Burnley managers. They then go back to Bournemouth and become manager of Bournemouth and take Junior with them. And, and he's and he's done it. He's right. he's got a career in the Premier League now, and and I saw Junior uh, again, and he said to me, "I wish I'd have listened to you when I was eighteen, because I realised, or seventeen. He said, I, I realised how hard you have to work to, to 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 get a career. He said, now I've got a family to support. He said, I realised that, uh, you know, if I want to earn anything or get anything out of the game, I've got to work at it, and that gave me a lot of pleasure to hear that." So, so those, sorts, those mm. sorts of things, you don't always, you know, get it right mm. when they're young, but as long as they take it with them and, and um, you know, and, and he's still playing, he's still in the Premier League and still playing. So uh, that, that, that gave me a lot of pleasure to hear that. Definitely. And do you know, I just want to take you back a little bit. You talked about Rio and you know, him just being able to perform the, you know, the way that you wanted him to. But he wasn't always... No, um... Um, I'm, I did an interview with Rio a few months ago and I'm sort of transcribing this interview into, into this book that I'm uh, trying to finish. And um, he, he was a centre-back when he was very, very young. And then he was, um, you know, as, as a kid messing around with a very local youth club, when I say messing around, playing for a local youth club. And then he became a midfield player and, and a forward attacking player. And it was when I wanted to change... A traditional four four two. Everybody played four four two, and I wanted to play three five two. Three at the back, two wing backs, three in midfield, two up front. And I could just see Rio playing as that central player of the three at the back, breaking into midfield to uh, overload midfield and use his ability to to sort of influence the game and start attacks from there. So when I when I asked him to play there, he was a little you know pulled a face and didn't, didn't really want to do it. And when I said to him, look, I want you to break into midfield and start up to a, start up attacks and overload in midfield, he went, oh, all right, I'll give that a go. And, and, and so he did and ended up playing it. But what he did say to me when I interviewed him, he said, but when I made my debut for the first team, Harry Redknapp played me in midfield. So, and I just, I just said, well, that, well, that showed, Rio, is how versatile you are. You know, how good you were at the, as a centre-back and how good you was as a midfield player that the first team manager felt that you could play a midfield role. So, so what do you think the make break moment was for him to kind of fall into either or? I think um, eventually, naturally, he ended up playing at the back. 
because um, I think that's where his biggest influence could be could be felt and seen. Now he could he could break up attacks. Mm. He could he was good at heading because he was big and tall. He was quick, so not many could beat him. He was a good reader of the game. The game's now in front of him a little bit more. You know he could read balls. He could you know he could intercept. And then also get on the ball and, and, and start to deliver those passes and occasionally break into midfield and start attacks. So I, I think he really cemented that position his, his last few years at West Ham and then he went to Leeds and Man United. So I just want to ask a question in, in regards to uh, Joel Cole in particular because with him, I felt like he's kind of um, led... Uh, a sort of um, generation of uh, a different sort of profile players that are getting produced in England, where you know, the, you know, they're, they're they're like the traditional sort of tens or like creative players. Like, what was it in him that you saw, uh, young? Gage, I think he was. Felt he was audacious to most players. He could. He would. He would make you smile just watching him. Mm. The things he did, the things he tried. You know, you think, oh Christ, you know, and you, it just make you smile. Uh, you know, the way he would beat people, the tricks he would try, uh, mm. and and they would come off. He wasn't just a, he wasn't just a show pony. Uh, and you now when he did these things, um, and maybe mm. lost possession, he'd go after the ball and you know and try retrieve it. He wasn't just a you know do a trick, lose it, and just stand there waiting for the ball to come. He would go after it, and, you know, and, and get on his backside and tackle. Even at a very young age, he had this overwhelming youthful enthusiasm, and and. And could play, you know, he could run with the ball, he could dribble, he could do tricks. Mm. And you think, you know, Christ almighty, this kid is like something different. And he was literally that, he was something different. You didn't see it. You know, those sorts of players were few and far between. Mm. And that was the big, that was the big thing that, uh, that, um, mm. that caught the eye. But it was, it was just his youthful enthusiasm as much as anything else. And how would you recommend for coaches to like? I'm not. I'm not saying they have a Joel Cole, but like a <coughs> like a player that has that sort of maverick ability. How would you uh, recommend for them to like sort of manage that, like manage their development? Because uh, you know, uh, uh, for a lot of coaches, I may may see that type of player and uh, and never seen them in the past. Yeah, yeah. Like the first thing you're thinking is to stop it, but like what? What would you do to Yeah, like, I think the most important thing is you must sort of pigeonhole organization aspect. You mustn't say, Oh, this player's a, this player's a right winger or this player's a, a number ten or mm. this player's don't pigeonhole them too early, especially the younger ones. Because I, you know, in the process keep going back to this book, it's not really a plug. Mm. But I interviewed Joe. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> you can come back, don't worry, you can come back just, and promote just, that. Just make sure you yeah. <laughs> when I interviewed Joe, I um he said when he was younger, he didn't have a, he didn't have a position. He just used to get in the playground, play football, and just try to dribble, just try to beat people and score a goal. He didn't have a position. Didn't really. He didn't understand. He didn't understand what a position was. He just enjoyed playing football. All he all he knew was, I'm trying to score in that goal, and the other team's trying to score in that goal. He didn't really know. Obviously, talking about playground football, he didn't really understand that there was leagues or there was teams or professional leagues. He didn't understand none of that and because um, his parents weren't really into it at that time. Hmm. Uh, so it was, it was a matter of uh, 
just in playing in playing football for the pure enjoyment of it. And I think that come across. And it wasn't until later on, even when he first came to us at West Ham as a 12, 13-year-old, um, it wasn't about what position is, is he going to play. Because when, when, I, when, I, when he certainly, when he came to me in the, in the sort of 16s in the youth team, I'll just give him, a, I'll give him a free role. You know, there weren't the four three threes at that time and there weren't the, like, the number 10s as we, as we call them these days. Um, they, it was, I just used to call, you've got a free role just off the striker. Or I'd play on the left but have licence to come in off the pitch and get into those little pockets behind the opposition's midfield and in front of their back four or back three. So I tried to develop a system around my best players. You know, I did it with Rio and I, I tried to do it with Joe. So don't pigeonhole them too early and give them a little bit of freedom. Give them a little bit of freedom. You know, and the story goes is when he went to Chelsea, Mourinho said to Joe, and this is out of Joe's own words, Mourinho said to me, you play the way I want you to play or you you sit in the stands. And uh, Joe said, I sat in the stands for two weeks and I thought, I better play the way he wants me to play because I'm not, (laughs) otherwise I'm not going to get in the team. (laughs) <laughs> so he, start, he, he started to sort of play him a little bit more um, rigidly within the team framework so it didn't do him any harm it started to learn him of you know his team responsibilities and you know he played all, well, 50 times for England or wherever it was won two Champions Leagues or won a Champions League and two Premier League titles or whatever it is so you know he didn't do too bad I'd, I'd like to have a little bit of that yeah. <laughs> yes. well Again, I just want to say thanks again, Tony. It's been a fantastic conversation up to now. And, you know, we've got yeah, a couple good. more questions yeah. to go. Had a long career. Um, again, forty-three plus, forty-three yeah. years at West Ham. You know, and I'm going to take you right back to look across your whole career. Has there been anything that you maybe feel like you weren't able to cross off your checklist in terms of wants or uh, ambitions of your own that you wish you could have gone back and done? Um... There was, I've got a couple of regrets in terms of picking players or making the wrong dis, wrong decision. Yeah. And I wish I could go back and correct that. But unfortunately, you can't. Any, yeah. Just... If you remember, I don't know uh, I don't know how old you guys are, but we, my very first year as a full-time coach, um, we won the FA Youth Cup uh, against Tottenham Hotspur. And uh, that was Paul Allen and Bobby Barnes. That was their year. Glenn Burville and players like that. And um, we had a player in midfield called Wayne Reader. Good young player, good youth player. Never made the grade at top level, but had a a decent career uh, in the lower leagues. Uh, And uh, he played in the first leg at at Upton Park. We won the first leg at Upton Park 2-0. And in the second leg, um, I had a young schoolboy called Alan Dickens. And I thought, we're going, we're going to White Hart Lane to play in the second leg. Uh, you know, we don't need to chase the game too much. And, and I thought, Wayne Reader had scored in the first leg, the first goal. Bobby Barnes scored the second goal. And I dropped Wayne Reader and played Alan Dickens. And um, because I thought Alan was perhaps a bit more technical, better passer, and that there might be long periods of the game where we've got to perhaps keep possession a bit better because we don't want to get, you know, let, let Tottenham score a goal and then we're forever, mm. uh, I mean, hang on 2-1 two, two, on aggregate. 
And I also thought we could only have one substitute in that time. And I'll put a defender on a substitute purely for that fact. If we went 2-1, we might need a defender just to see the game through. So I didn't put Wayne in the, in the first 11 or on the bench. And I regret that. I do regret that. And, I, and even after all these years, uh, I occasionally think about it. I have apologised to him since. But if I could turn the clock back, the, the least I would have done was at least have had him on the bench. Because at that time, um, they only issued 12 medals and he didn't get a medal for winning the Youth Cup, although he played in the first leg and scored. So that's something I really, really regret. And um, mm. uh, it's too late now. I can't turn the clock back. <laughs> if funnily enough, the next mm. question is going to be this. If you could turn the clock back and talk to yourself yeah. as a coach starting out, you know, we're going back yeah. 50 years now what would be a key message that you'd give to yourself back then, you know, as, as that 17-year-old take or 18-year-old taking his prelim, getting into the coaching, going into schools, what would be that major key message that you think about across your career? This is really going to help. Um, I think be- because I was coming into the professional game and not having what one would consider a top professional career, in other words, I didn't play in the first team, that, that always um, bugged me, that I felt I was being judged because I didn't play in the first team. And I always felt I had to prove myself because I didn't play in the first team. You know, because it was always that era of, well, put your medals on the table, so to speak. Can you sit, get my drift? So if I could go back, yeah. I would say, have more confidence in your own mm-hmm. ability because you weren't bad at what you did. So have more confidence in your own ability and, uh, you know, stick your chest out a bit more and be a bit more proud and uh, just be a bit more confident about what you were good at. So it, it was something like that, I would say, to my young self. Because I was always a little sure. bit, uh, I wouldn't say shy, but I, I, it, it did, especially in the early days, it did inhibit me a little bit. Yeah. Just, you know, just, again... It's been a long career. You know, you've, you've mentioned it a few times now. So my, well, my question was going to be, what's next for Tony Clark? Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's your I'm, book, isn't I'm, it? this lockdown's helped me sort of get, because I've been on it for about a year or more. And, and um, sure, I'm, I'm almost finished. I'm just transcribing the interviews that I've done and put them, put them in, spacing them out in the book where it's relevant. And um, yeah, I, 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 I should be finished within the next month anyway. And, well, I haven't well, got a title yet. I'm, I'm, I'm open to suggestions. So if anybody listening to this wants to throw me a suggestion about a book of, of – it's about it's an autobiography, so I've started where, <laughs> I, where I was born, where I was brought up, where I first learned football. I was born in Bow in East London, you know, a stone's throw from where the London Stadium is now. And, and um, mm. so, you know, and I'm, all my life's been West Ham, mm. so I don't know. Yeah, no, we'll put a poll yes. up on our social. I'm open to suggestions, so if you want to drop me an email we'll later on with some of yeah. your suggestions, I'll be open to looking at those. It'll be yeah, it'll be interesting. Definitely, definitely. Um, now, definitely. Yeah, very interesting conversation so far. Um, you mentioned something earlier about yeah. the London Coaches Association and your involvement with that. Do you want to, uh, maybe just give our listeners a bit of a, a heads up in terms of how they might be able to yeah, well, access well, it's, that environment? Um, if you go on, there, 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 
there was a website, but the guy that used to run the website is um, sadly died, and the website is is a bit defunct at the moment. But we train on when I say we train, we have a coaching guest on the last Thursday of every month. And at the moment, obviously we're suspended because of COVID. Um, so hopefully we're going to yep. start again in September, the last mm. Wednesday in September that, although that's not confirmed. So um, if people look out for the London coaches association and, and we, we do it at the Arsenal hub at the, em, at the Emirates stadium where the, yep. their community program is. And there's a, an indoor arena there and it's open to, to coaches of all levels to just come and watch. We have all we have all sorts of coaches, you know. Yeah. Mark McGee, and I've done the odd session myself. Um, coaches within the professional game that are working at all levels, and they put on sessions for people to watch and ask questions. And, and I think there's nothing better to uh, mm. than watch a professional coach work, and then perhaps afterwards with a Q and A, and have, have a have a you know a question and answer where they can answer questions and. And learn stuff really, and that, and that's basically it. And it's free, you know. There's no, there's no, 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 no charge. Just come along and support us because our, our support at the moment is dwindling, yeah. and I'm not sure how long we're going to last. So if we if we could get some more support, it would be most you know most grateful. Well, definitely, what we could do, Tony, if you know, if you send across some details to us, then we can kind of uh, okay. send that out to people as well. Uh, if. Yeah. I think I'll be very. I think there'll be plenty of yeah, listeners that would be uh, more than more than happy to latch onto that opportunity. Um, just, just last one for me, really. I'm not sure if Ben has any other questions, but you know, if you had 60 seconds now, um, and you had to wrap it up with one golden nugget and a practical step for, I guess, the listeners to take away and potentially apply within their own, yeah. their own coaching practice. What would that? What would uh, that my be? advice would be, um, get as many hours under your belt as you can. The more you'd learn, the more you make mistakes, the more you, the quicker you learn. And don't be afraid to ask questions. I mean, I was always, if I say it so myself, I was always good at that. If I didn't understand something, I didn't sort of let my ignorance, if, if I put it in those words, I didn't let my ignorance show by asking a question. Maybe you think it's a silly question. Ask a question if you don't understand. Ask the coach, why did you do it that way? What did you mean by that when you said that? And it sort of, it, you start to develop your understanding a bit more. So it was ask questions, try to watch, try to watch good coaches, and get out on the grass or on the pitch because it's not always grass these days. Sometimes it's more artificial. Yeah, get out on the pitch and get hours under your belt. <laughs> make mistakes because you will, and you, you'll know when you make mistakes. The coach sometimes the players might not know you've made a mistake, but you do, and and, and learn from that. Yeah. And, and try to adjust it and, and experiment with stuff. Be innovative. Try things. See what's received well. See what's not received well. And um, study the game, in effect. Be the, be the best you can be. And uh, be the best you can okay. be is, is my, final, my final word, really, in that respect. Fantastic. Look, I just want to finish on one quick fire round for you. Um, let's see how we get on. Best player you've ever worked Too many with, to so. mention. Best strikers, Ooh. Tony Cotty, Jermaine Defoe. <laughs> Best midfielders, too many. Mark Noble, Frank Lampard, Alan Dickens, good, good player. Very, very good player. So many more. 
Some I've forgotten. Rio Ferdinand. Best right. defense. Mm. Best manager. I suppose best it has to be John Law because he was my biggest influence. I wouldn't say he was the best manager, but he was the best manager I worked under because he was my biggest influence. And he, and he's still today West Ham's most successful manager in terms of winning stuff. Um, although Harry um, did, or something, who was it reached the highest league position? Harry, Harry did the seventh, I think, in the Premier League, which is an achievement. Um, yeah. So, you know, all good managers, basically. They were all good managers. Um, not all successful, but um, John was probably the most influential. So I have to say John, really. Oh, good best one. coach you've ever worked with. Uh, best coach I've ever worked with. Oh, dear. God, never thought of that. The best coach I've ever worked with. Uh, I mean, I had Peter Braybrook as my assistant. And <laughs> Peter, we, we used to bounce things off each other really good. Really, really well. Glenn Roder was a good coach. Glenn Roder was a good coach. Uh, he, was, he wasn't our most successful manager, but was a good coach. Very studious, very good coach. Um, Peter Grant was a very... Alan Pardew's uh, assistant was a good coach. Uh, Alan Irving, who I know was um, David Moyes' assistant, mm. he was a very good coach. Although I didn't personally work with him, but I knew him. He was a good coach. Yeah, there's you know all, many good coaches uh, I'd work with. Mm. Um, Ronnie Boyce was a thought, a thoughtful coach. He he would study things and was very very thoughtful. Um, but but he didn't enjoy coaching as much. I don't think he enjoyed it as much. He mm. didn't give me that impression he did. But he was a, a very thoughtful coach. Understood the game, in other words. But um, yeah, it's, it's, they're, everybody's different, aren't they? You know. What you know? What is good coaching? It's a difficult. You know, throw that question out. What is yeah. good coaching? I don't know. What is good coaching? I don't know. Players enjoy it. It was insightful. It was knowledgeable. I mean, what is good coaching? <laughs> Everybody's different. Yeah. I guess so. Yeah, right, two two last two last one. One player. One player that slipped away from you. Ray Houghton. We should have. We should have kept Ray Houghton. Um, we should have signed. Uh, John Terry. We should have kept John. Um, he slipped away. Uh, he was a midfield player then when he was with us, John. Um, talented midfield player. Ended up as a centre-back, another one that's trans, you know, changed his position and turned out to be a top, top player. Um, you know, Jason Dizel, we, we, he slipped away. He could have been a decent player at West Ham. So we've had these players and even, even when I was, a, when I was a, a apprentice at West Ham, a trialist came down to Scotland and trained with us the youth team for two weeks. That was Stephen Gerrard, uh, not Stephen Gerrard, Kenny Dalgleish. Mm. Came down, came down wow, to Scotland okay. and trained <laughs> with us the youth team for two two weeks and went wow. back to sign with Celtic. <laughs> so, you know, could have, you know, who knows, could have signed West Ham, but we perhaps didn't try hard enough. <laughs> and I was, I was a young apprentice then, yeah. so it wasn't, wasn't nothing to do with me, but, uh, I mm. thought they'll slip that one in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, don't, no, yeah, don't, don't have that one. Don't have that one. Last one then. Um, was there ever another role that you wish you had an opportunity oh, to take up in your yeah. career? Um, I suppose right at the end, I'd like to have become, um, after all my years of experience, you know, before the sort of uh, the, the tap on the shoulder came, um, I'd like to have become uh, the sort of, if you like, the 
technical director of the academy. So I could impart my knowledge um, or the, the ambassador for the academy and, and, and impart my knowledge to the younger coaches. Because most of the coaches now in the, in the academies are very young. And I think they could do with, a, they could do with perhaps an older head that could to, just to guide them, not to tell yeah. them what to do, but just to guide them and, and just give them little nuggets of information and watch sessions and, 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 and just encourage and, and help them along the way. And I think that that would have been a role that towards the end I would have really, really enjoyed. But obviously it wasn't to be. Well, listen, uh, what I can say to you, Tony, look, it's been a fantastic conversation. It's been a great opportunity for us to get, get some insight from you. Um, a lot, lot, you know, you've offered up a lot more time than we expected as well. So, you know, thank you again for that. All right, lovely, lads. Yeah. Thanks very much for asking Managed me. Get- well, there you have it, guys. Another edition of the Coaches Network Insight Series, where we sit down with experienced individuals across the multiple disciplines within the coaching world, hoping to explore their journeys and key insights in order to package away some golden nuggets that you can apply to help you reach your full potential. I've no doubt that you've enjoyed today's episode as much as we have, but I just want to say thanks again for tuning in. The support is much appreciated. Please do get in touch with us and today's guests. Let us know where you're listening from to share your thoughts, views and key takeaways from today's show, along with any suggestions you may have for guests or future topics on the show that you'd like to hear discussed. Ultimately, guys, the show is about yourselves. The content is for you and we just want to continue to create that great content. On that note, get in touch with us on Instagram at The Coaches Network and on Twitter at The Coaches Net. And if you want to touch base with Coach Ben, he's available on Instagram and Twitter at FocusBXN. Lastly, guys, keep an eye on our socials for the latest updates and announcements for upcoming guests and discussion topics with the panel. And until next time, guys, take care. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together.